Anita and Daniel. Um, and thank you to all of you for coming today, but also all, all term. So Manu and I are going to do a bit of back and forth. Um, I will start and then Manu will take over from me and then I will come back and then she'll take over from me and then I will come back and then she'll take over until the last person walks out of the door. Is <laughs> 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 basically the way in which we're going to do it. So what we're going to do is to talk about um, the law relating to the conduct of humanitarian relief operations in armed conflict. So this is the law relating to humanitarian access. And the basic questions that we're asking are the questions of when and under what conditions are parties to an armed conflict and sometimes non-parties to an armed conflict as well obliged to give humanitarian actors access uh, in order to provide food, medicines, and other basic supplies to civilians. And we will be speaking about a document that we've both been involved in drawing up. Um, so this is the Oxford Guidance on the law relating to humanitarian relief operations in situations of armed conflict which was commissioned by the UN Office for the Coordination of Humanitarian Affairs, UNOCHA, and as the name implies, it's the Oxford Guidance. It was developed by a process that took place here in, in Oxford. Let me just say a little bit about, before we even get to the law relating to humanitarian relief operations, just say a little bit about the background to the document. Say a little bit about the background to this area of, of the law. Um, for, I don't know, over a decade, I've taught international humanitarian law here, and I've never taught um, anything relating to humanitarian relief operations. Um, I've never been involved in a course in a university where that has been taught. If you look at most IHL books, there's very little on humanitarian access issues, humanitarian relief operations, Talita referred to the practitioner's guide that I and others were involved in on the application of human rights in, in armed conflict. And we have, I think, four pages on humanitarian access issues. So those of us who teach IHL, work in the area, we tend to spend a lot of our time talking about issues to do with targeting, you know, who can be targeted. Uh, we tend to spend a lot of our time talking about issues to do with weaponry, issues to do with detention, you know, who can be detained. And we don't spend a lot of time, I think, at least in the academic world anyway, thinking about these issues, about access to food, medicine, and these supplies. But in reality, most people actually who are killed in armed conflict die not as a result of, not as a result of a violent death that results from targeting, um, but most people actually die as a result of lack of food, access to water, shelter, those kinds of things. And a huge amount of the suffering, in addition to the deaths that are caused in armed conflict, arise from these uh, basic needs not being, not being met. So in that sense, I think it's a, it's a big gap in the academic consideration of the subject and in the literature that we don't actually focus on those issues where um, most, of the need, um, most of the need is. <coughs> Having said that, in the last, I don't know, five years, six years, these issues have come more to the fore as a result of some of the severe challenges that we've seen in some of the more recent conflicts. So probably conflict in Sudan maybe was the first one that really brought this to the fore. 
And then, of course, the conflict in Syria. There has been a lot of attention paid to these issues of humanitarian access. And then most recently, of course, in, in Yemen, we see again a lot of issues, a lot of attention paid to these issues of, of humanitarian access. So it's become a central challenge to the protection of civilians in, in armed conflict because we see also that parties to conflict often impede the delivery of this uh, much-needed humanitarian relief supplies and, in a sense, it's being used, as some people describe it, as, as a weapon of war, the denial of humanitarian access. So the UN Secretary General, in his recent report to the Security Council on the Protection of Civilians, has identified improving access for humanitarian operation as one of the five core challenges to enhancing the protection of civilians in, in armed conflict. And in uh, 2013, in a report to the Security Council, the UN Secretary General called for further analysis on one aspect of the law relating to humanitarian relief operations. That's the issue of arbitrary withholding of consent to uh, these operations and the consequences thereof. And the Secretary General instructed OCHA to carry out this analysis on arbitrary withholding of consent. OCHA, in turn, commissioned the Oxford Institute for Ethics, Law and Armed Conflict, ELAC, and the Oxford Martin Programme on Human Rights for Future Generations to conduct expert consultations on these issues to examine the rules and to look at the options for providing guidance on, on the law in this area. And Manu and I <coughs> were honored to lead that process of consultations, which resulted in the elaboration and the drafting of, of this, the Oxford guidance. Um, the process involved a number of expert meetings which took place here in, in Oxford. So we had a range of experts from different um, if you like, professional backgrounds, academics, people from civil society, people from relevant UN agencies. And I think we had, was it four expert meetings in Oxford, something like that. And also we had some informal consultations in Geneva and in, and in New York. At, uh, at a very early stage in the process, the experts unanimously agreed that despite the fact that we'd been task, if you like, to look at this question of arbitrary withholding of consent, we agreed that it would not be possible, nor would it be helpful, to focus exclusively on this question of what does arbitrary withholding of consent mean, and that that element of the law had to be put into its proper context, and that's what we tried to do in the, in the Oxford Guidance. So what the Oxford Guidance does... Uh, by Oxford guidance, I now mean this document. What it does is it tries to present in sequential order the rules uh, relating to the key steps of humanitarian relief operations. And so the format of the document is one of a narrative commentary that sets out the law and then conclusions that present the key elements. So it's divided into several sections and then each section starts with a commentary and then it concludes with um, rules that are italicized. And I can tell you that we spent some time talking about whether the rules should be bold or italics, <laughs> whether the rules should come first and then a commentary, or whether the comment, and these things all at the time appeared to be really 
important. Were there and, rules? And maybe, were they principles? Were there rules? Were there principles? Were there elements? Italics, bold, before or after the commentary? But in the end, it's commentary first, which is a bit unusual, and then conclusions, which are in, in italics. And what the guidance needs to do is to reflect the existing state of the law, but also to clarify areas of, of uncertainty and where the law is unclear or where there's controversy in the sense that at least the experts we had in the room had expressed a range of views. What we would do is we would actually try to reflect that range of, of views um, and sometimes we would take, take a position. Um, so we are the, Manu and I, the authors of the document it emerged out of this consultation process, but the conclusions don't necessarily reflect the unanimous view of all the experts that are consulted. And in the text, we set out the places where different views were, were expressed. So what are we going to do in this talk? So what we're going to do is we're going to, first of all, set out the framework of the law relating to humanitarian relief operations. So just to give you uh, an overview. And then we're going to ask four central questions um, at least four questions that we consider to be the central questions addressed in, in the guidance. So the four questions that we're going to look at are whose consent is required for the conduct of humanitarian relief operations? Manu will talk about that. So Manu will set out the framework, then she'll talk about this first question of whose consent is required for the conduct of humanitarian relief operations in non-international armed conflicts. Then I will talk about the question of what amounts to arbitrary withholding of consent. Then Manu will talk about the key elements of the obligation on parties and non-parties to allow and facilitate unimpeded passage, rapid and unimpeded passage of humanitarian relief operations. And then finally, I will talk about the consequences of unlawfully impeding humanitarian relief operations. Okay. Thank you, Dapo, and thank you, Talita and Daniel, for inviting me. It's really a pleasure to be here, and the weather is always like this when I come to Oxford. So it's pretty amazing. Thank you. So uh, first and foremost, very briefly, what are the basic principles of the rules of IHL regulating humanitarian relief operations? And in fact, before I even get to that, I just wanted to confirm something Dapo said. When I was a legal advisor at the International Committee of the Red Cross, for seven years, um, assistance, as it was called, was one of my files. For seven years, I did not receive a single legal question. That was just the realities in the 2000s. It wasn't a legal issue. Matters that did arise were simply um, addressed by negotiation by my operational colleagues. And I think that was the reality of the discourse also in operations back then. And uh, as Dapo says, it's been, I would say, since Syria that a spotlight has been turned onto the legal framework, which I think is something extremely positive because it is an area that we need to map out and understand. At the same time, when I'm speaking to my operational colleagues, I'm also, um, I always sound a note of caution saying, it's essential that you understand the law, so I'm delighted that you're coming to us. I am particularly delighted that I can offer you the guidance that hopefully will address a number of your questions, but please, don't forget that the vast majority of the problems you are facing simply don't have a legal answer and, in fact, should not be addressed by trying to have a legal discourse. They are a matter of negotiation with the parties to the conflict. So I think this is a very important background to, to operations. 
But something that colleagues need to bear in mind is that ultimately it is by negotiation that they're going to manage to address their problems and by a, a progressive uh, building of trust, um, which is that, that you manage to achieve by operating in a manner that is transparent and principled. So an important part of uh, managing to obtain access and deliver assistance, but only one part of the exercise. Turning to what the basic building blocks are of the rules regulating humanitarian relief operation, they're fairly simple and essentially the same in both international and non-international armed conflict. First and foremost, and I always um, emphasize this for my operational colleagues, primary responsibility lies with the parties to the conflict that have control over the civilians. Let's not forget that. That's where primary responsibility lies. In situations where the party is unable or unwilling to meet the needs of civilians, offers may be made to carry out actions that are humanitarian and impartial in character. The consent of affected states is required before these offers can be um, implemented. States have no latitude to withhold consent to offers to conduct relief operations in two situations. The first is in situations of occupation. If the civilian population um, is not provided with supplies essential for its survival, then the occupying power must accept offers to conduct uh, relief operations. The second situation is where the UN Security Council adopts binding measures requiring parties to consent to offers or, more drastically, imposing relief operations on the parties. And this is something quite unprecedented. In fact, when we started working on this, it hadn't occurred, but it's now happened in relation to Syria, where the Security Council imposed cross-border and cross-line operations um, in Syria. And if we want, we can have a, a talk about that particular example later. In all other situations, consent is required, but may not be withheld arbitrarily. And Dapo is going to explain what arbitrary withholding of consent um, consists of. And then once consent has been obtained, parties to an armed conflict must allow and facilitate the rapid and unimpeded passage of relief operations and may prescribe technical arrangements under which such passage is permitted. So IHL foresees two successive steps. First, an acceptance of offers to conduct relief operations. And second, once consent has been um, obtained, an obligation to allow and facilitate the relief operations. And most frequently, it is at this second stage that problems arise. But because of um, situations such as Syria, but also South Sudan, where states have actually refused to agree to offers in the first place, a lot of the attention in recent years has focused on this initial step, the authorization to operate at all. But I think it's extremely important that as a matter of law, we keep these separately, separate as uh, two separate steps. I've just come back from several weeks of working with INGOs in Syria. And again, just the experience there, I can see is leading to a change in the way they're looking at operations and a conflating of initial authorization to operate and all the successive steps. And 
they are distinct as a matter of law and also operationally. Ordinarily, you would not seek authorization once you've got the green light to operate there. You would not seek authorization to go and deliver a convoy. But Syria is really affecting the way humanitarians are operating. So as Depo said, the first thing I'm going to touch upon is the question of whose consent is required. And this is one of the areas in which the law is different in international and non-international armed conflicts. In international armed conflict, it's pretty straightforward. Article 70 of Additional Protocol 1 requires the consent of the parties concerned in the relief actions, in the plural. And the expression refers most notably to the state party in whose territory you intend to conduct the relief operations. And the position in non-international armed conflict is more complicated, and there are two treaty provisions that are relevant, Common Article 3.2 of the Geneva Conventions and Article 18.2 of Additional Protocol 2, and they take slightly different positions. Common Article 3.2 provides that an impartial humanitarian body may offer its services to the parties to the conflict. It's silent, however, as to whose consent is required. And um, this is one of the areas where there was a divergence of view among the experts. Some interpret this provision as implicitly allowing humanitarian relief operations to be conducted if the party to whom the offer is made accepts it. That's all that's required. You don't also need the consent of the other side. Um, others have taken the view that the silence in common Article 2 with regard to consent can't be interpreted in this manner, particularly in view of the significant infringement of the state's territorial sovereignty that allowing humanitarian operations to be conducted without the consent of the state would entail. And just to, perhaps I should have said this earlier, to be clear, what is the kind of situation where this question of whose consent is relevant. It's those situations where the opposition is holding part of the territory and it is possible to conduct relief operations from neighboring countries. So obviously if in order to reach the part um, that, that's opposite, under the, uh, opposition held you've got to cross through the territory under the control of the state, of course you need its consent. But what about where it is possible to reach them without doing so? So as I said, common article three has been interpreted as some by saying, no, if you can get there directly, as long as the party to whom you make the offer accepts it, you don't need the consent of the state. Article 18.2 of Additional Protocol 2 is more explicit on this issue, requiring the consent of the high contracting party concerned. Now, this would appear to be a clear reference to the state party in non-international armed conflict. However, interestingly, it has been suggested by some that the state is not, in fact, concerned if the relief operations can reach the opposition-held territory without crossing its territory. So, according to, to some, its consent, the consent of the state, is only required if the, if, the, um, if the relief operations have to cross its territory. If not, the state is not concerned and op um, the operations can be conducted without the consent of the state. So how did we deal with this in, the, in our expert consultations? The majority of those involved were not actually persuaded by this approach. Um, we felt that 
the suggestion that a state is not concerned by relief operations taking place in its territory, even if they are in areas beyond its effective control, really does appear to be contrary to basic considerations of territorial sovereignty. Secondly, looking more closely at the actual language, this interpretation would suggest that there may be circumstances in which no high contracting party is concerned, which would make the express reference to the consent of the high contracting party redundant. In light of the silence um, of Common Article 3 on, and the specific reference to the high contracting party in Article 18.2, what the Oxford guidance does is adopt a position that tries to give due weight to general principles of international law relating to territorial sovereignty, but also to the responsibility of the state towards civilians and say that the consent of the state is always required, but that it has a narrower range of possible grounds for withholding consent in situations where the operations will be conducted in areas beyond its control. So a point I always make at this stage is that's what the law says. It's extremely important to bear in mind that as a matter of operational practice, it is essential to obtain the consent of all the actors through whose territory you transit and in whose territory you want to operate if you want to be able to do that in a manner that is safe and unimpeded. Okay, so let me now turn to the question of arbitrary withholding of consent, which as I said was in some ways the starting point from all of this. So despite the apparently absolute nature of the requirement that consent be obtained, it has been, it has come to be accepted that such consent may not be withheld arbitrarily. And there are two questions that arise here and which I want to deal with in this section. So first of all, where does this principle even come from that consent may not be withheld arbitrarily? That's the first uh, question. The second question is what does this mean? What exactly amounts to an arbitrary withholding of consent? So on the first question, where does this requirement come from? So the principle prohibiting arbitrary withholding of consent is derived from three considerations, all relating to, to treaty interpretation. So first of all, it's derived from the need to provide an effective interpretation of the relevant treaty texts, which gives effect to all aspects of those provisions and does not render parts of them redundant. And I'll come back to, to that. So it's effective, the principle of effective interpretation. Secondly, the principle is derived by looking at the drafting history of the relevant treaty text, particularly additional protocol, the, the um, additional protocols. Um, thirdly, the principle is reflected in practice subsequent to the adoption of, of the protocols. Though, as I will indicate later on, there I don't just mean state subsequent state practice but also broader broader practice so first of all the need to interpret these treaty texts um, in a manner which gives effect to all of the provisions so when you look at the relevant treaty text article 70 of additional protocol 1 article 18 of additional protocol 2 that manu just referred to those texts state that where the relevant where the civilian population is inadequately provided with essential supplies relief actions that are humanitarian and impartial in character and conducted without adverse distinction shall be undertaken. And that's, I'm quoting, shall be undertaken. However, these operations are also stated to be subject to the agreement or consent 
of the state concerned in such relief actions. So while that last phrase makes it clear that consent is required, the point that Manu has just been making, the use of the word shall also suggests that acceptance of humanitarian relief is not entirely discretionary. So to interpret the provisions in such a way as to ignore the requirement of consent entirely, or alternatively to insist on an unlimited right of the state to withhold consent, would fail to give effect to one or the other of these aspects of, of the provision. And so interpreting the text in a manner which insists on the requirement of consent, but which also requires that such consent must not be withheld arbitrarily, gives effect to both aspects of, of, um, of the provision. And that interpretation would be consistent with the principle that a treaty must not be interpreted in a way as to render parts of the text redundant or, or meaningless. So that's the first element. Secondly, as I indicated, the requirement that consent must not be arbitrarily withheld is also derived from the drafting history of the additional protocol. So when you look at the travaux préparatoire, you can see that in the negotiations it was already noted that a party refusing consent had to do so for valid reasons. It had to uh, do so for reasons that were not arbitrary or capricious ones. And this is um, these points that were made during the negotiations were not objected to by, by anyone at the time. And then thirdly, um, despite the absence of specific words in the treaty text that refer to arbitrary withholding of consent, this principle or that consent must not be arbitrarily withheld is reflected in subsequent formulations of, of the rule. Um, those subsequent formulations, as I indicated earlier, it's not just by, by states, but for example, in things like the guiding principles on internal displacement, the Institut de Droit International in 2003 in their resolution on humanitarian assistance, uh, the Council of Europe recommendation on internally displaced persons. The ILC has picked this up more recently in its work on um, protection of persons in the event of, of disasters. And then now also more recently when you see the way in which the Security Council, the General Assembly and the uh, Human Rights Council in all of their recent resolutions that address the legality of obstructions to humanitarian access, all of them address them from this perspective of what they term arbitrary denial of humanitarian access. So that's the first thing. Where, do these, where does this principle come from, that consent must not be arbitrarily withheld? And then the second point is, what does this actually mean? And this, I think, is what people were grasping for answers for um, in the Security Council and elsewhere around the time when we started work on this. So what does it actually mean to say that um, consent must not be arbitrarily withheld and what are, the, what are the conditions? Now, one stumbling block, I think, in thinking about arbitrary withholding of consent is that often people tend to think that the word arbitrary equates to on a whim, without reason. And so if you say it mustn't be arbitrarily withheld, that suggests that, oh, it just means that you mustn't do it without having any, any, any reasons. However, I think the notion of, of uh, arbitrariness in international law has a wider meaning than that. And we were able to draw on 
various areas of international law where notions of arbitrariness is used to show that it has a wider, a wider meaning, one that is broader than the ordinary meaning might, um, might suggest. And it's not always possible to capture in advance all the elements that may make uh, a decision arbitrary or render an action arbitrary, but there are certain key elements which um, may be identified and which provide a starting point for considering the issue of, of arbitrariness. And essentially, we say that um, consent is arbitrarily withheld in three situations. So first of all, it would be arbitrarily withheld if it's withheld in circumstances that violate a party's other obligations under international law with respect to the civilian population. That's number one. Secondly, it would be withheld arbitrarily if it violates principles of necessity and proportionality. And then thirdly, as a sort of catch-all, consent would be withheld arbitrarily if it's withheld in a manner that is unreasonable or unjust or lacking in, in predictability or otherwise um, inappropriate. So just to take those three very quickly. So the first one, arbitrariness that derives from illegality under other applicable rules of, of international law. Um, in human rights law and in other areas of international law, it's quite clear that the concept of arbitrariness is broader than unlawfulness. But where international law prohibits arbitrary action, conduct which would violate a party's other obligations is usually regarded as arbitrary. So one can think, for example, of the Nuclear Weapons Advisory Opinion of the ICJ, where the ICJ is interpreting arbitrary deprivation of life under the ICCPR, and it said that arbitrariness there would include, in a situation of armed conflict, action which is unlawful under IHL, um, so uh, uh, obligations that are applicable there. And you can see the same uh, reasoning or rationale used by human rights courts and tribunals, and also in developing the concept of arbitrary uh, denial of, of nationality. And one can think of um, a number of examples where um, withholding of consent would be arbitrary in our context of humanitarian relief operations because they are inconsistent with other obligations. So, for example, if, um, it, is, if it would be uh, contributing to or intended to per perpetuate uh, or cause starvation, um, if it's discriminatory, if it is in breach of those provisions of IHL that deal with um, obligations relating to medical supplies and medical, medical equipment. So that's the first ground. The second ground of arbitrariness relates to a failure to comply with principles of necessity and proportionality. And here it's important to stress that we're talking about necessity and proportionality as it's derived from human rights law. So in contexts where international law prohibits um, arbitrary conduct, it's been cons consistently stated that for conduct not to be arbitrary, not only must it be lawful, it must also be necessary for achieving legitimate ends, and it must be a proportionate means of achieving, achieving those, those ends. And then the third um, meaning of arbitrariness there, arbitrariness as unreasonableness or, or capriciousness, is if you like a sort of catch-all or, or sweep-all. So even if the action is lawful, 
even if the state is, um, or the party concerned, is doing it in circumstances where it might be, um, it might be necessary, um, it still has to be done in a manner which is not, not arbitrary. So, for example, one of the examples that we focus on relates to giving of reasons. So one might say that if you withhold consent without giving any reasons at all, that might, for example, be regarded as arbitrary in, in this sense. Thank you. I, and I'm going to turn to the next step. So as I said, once um, consent has been obtained, uh, parties to an armed conflict must allow and facilitate the rapid and unimpeded passage of relief supplies. And this is the obligation that's really central to the conduct of relief operations. But there's actually only a few provisions within IHL that explain what allow and facilitate actually entails. So, for example, parties may not divert relief consignments from their intended purpose nor delay their forwarding. Restrictions may be imposed on the activities and the freedom of movement of humanitarian relief personnel only in case of imperative military necessity, and even then only temporarily. And in situations of occupations, relief consignments must be exempt from all charges, taxes, and customs. And that's it. Those are the only express provisions that we find as to how, what allow and facilitate must, um, actually entails. So what we did in the, in the guidance is kind of step away from the law a bit and give examples of possible <coughs> measures that states that could take, that parties could take, to actually allow and facilitate uh, relief operations. The second side of this obligation is the entitlement of parties to prescribe technical arrangements for the passage. And I think the reality is that reservations that parties may have had about agreeing to the relief operations in the first place could in fact be addressed by appropriate measures of control. And this takes me back to my, my point earlier about the need to negotiate. This is when you try and understand the state or the organized armed groups, what its reservations are, and find ways of addressing them. Um, <clears throat> what are possible types of measures of control? Well, for example, allowing parties to satisfy themselves that the relief consignments are in fact exclusively humanitarian by conducting searches, or agreeing times and or routes that the relief consignments could take in order to ensure that they're not endangered or that they don't hamper military operations, for example. It's, it's really common sense, but it requires negotiation, and it requires negotiation. A point that I think is important to bear in mind is that organized armed groups have the same obligation to allow and facilitate, but also the same entitlement to adopt measures of control. And that's something that's sometimes overlooked. And when organized armed groups, in fact, say, I, I want to search, or perhaps I want you to register in order to be able to operate here, which actually makes sense purely from a coordination point of view. If they are in control of territory, they need to know who's moving around and the kinds of activities they're conducting. They're actually entitled to do that. It's not a violation of international law. Um, what's actually quite challenging is, while it's, as, it's relatively easy from a a legal point of view to determine whether a state has withheld consent 
in um, arbitrarily. It's far more difficult to determine as a matter of practice um, whether or not a state has impeded obligations to the point that it has actually violated the obligation to allow and facilitate. Essentially, all administrative procedures um, and formalities and technical arrangements must be applied in good faith, and their nature, extent, and impact must not prevent the rapid delivery of humanitarian relief in a manner that is impartial and conducted without um, adverse distinction. So at what point are impediments, is the failure to allow and facilitate of a nature to amount to a violation of this obligation? And I think here it's important to bear in mind that we're not looking at a bilateral relationship between the party in control and the particular organization whose operations are being impeded, even severely so. What's, what we need to look at are the needs of the civilian population, um, and whether the effect of all the limitations or the failure to allow and facilitate um, on all those are authorized to operate. So you've got to look at the impact on the civilian population and see whether or not the, uh, the, the effect is to leave them without the assistance that they need. So it's an analysis of all the actors and who's actually in a position to, to operate. Okay, so the final thing that we talk about in the guidance um, is the question of the consequences um, under international law for unlawfully impeding humanitarian relief operations. Okay, so if the determination is made that humanitarian relief operations are unlawfully impeded either because there's no consent is withheld arbitrarily or because a party has violated its obligations to allow and facilitate, what are the consequences? And we looked at this from two perspectives. So first of all, the consequences for the party that is unlawfully impeding, and then the consequences for those who want to engage in humanitarian relief operations. Now, in relation to consequences for the party that is unlawfully impeding, that's essentially, in the case of states, a question of state responsibility. In the case of individuals, it might entail individual criminal responsibility under international criminal law, or in certain circumstances, it might and has led to the Security Council imposing targeted sanctions on the individuals or the parties that are involved in the decision to unlawfully impede. But what about consequences for those who seek to conduct operations? So they've been unlawfully impeded and others want to, want to go in. And again, this is one of the questions that people were looking for answers to. Does that then mean that we can, that we can go in? And in conducting this um, analysis, first of all, one has to make a distinction between different types of actors. Um, so unlawful impeding of humanitarian relief operations is a violation of international law, but it does not automatically give rise to a general entitlement to conduct such operations without the consent of, of the relevant states. Except, of course, in those cases where the Security Council has adopted a resolution which allows uh, actors to go in without the consent of, 
of the relevant um, of the relevant state. And here, one has to look at the interaction between uh, international humanitarian law and and human rights law with general international law, particularly the law of state responsibility, the law relating to international organisations, um, because in making this determination of whether an entity is entitled to go in, one has to then think about rules safeguarding state sovereignty, rules relating to territorial integrity. Now, while all actors seeking to conduct humanitarian relief operations must comply with the relevant rules of IHL that we've just been setting out, if their activities and staff are to benefit from the safeguards, so whether it's a state or an international organization or an NGO, they have to comply with these rules to benefit from the safeguards of those rules. Um, uh, if they operate without consent, that does not mean that the, the personnel or the supplies lose their, their civilian status. However, when one is thinking about the legality of operating without consent, the rules differ depending on who is um, engaging in this activity. So we have to think, first of all, are we talking about a state or an international organization that might be bound by rules of public international law relating to territorial integrity? Or are we thinking of an NGO which has a responsibility under domestic law, of course, to respect the law of the country concerned, but which arguably doesn't have an international law obligation relating to territorial integrity. So one might need to make that um, separation. Um, now, if we stick just with states and international, uh, international organizations for the moment, of course, going into the territory of another state without the consent of that other state would be a violation of that latter state sovereignty and territorial integrity and would therefore be unlawful. The question that then arises is whether the wrongfulness of such humanitarian relief operations conducted without consent, whether they may exceptionally be precluded in extremely limited circumstances of, of severe need. And there are two circumstances precluding wrongfulness that might become relevant here. So the first one is the principle of necessity, and then the second one that might be relevant is counter countermeasures. Um, and so one needs to look at whether these principles are brought into play. Another issue that might need to be considered, particularly from the perspective of an international organization, is whether or not the rules of that international organization allow it to engage in that operation whatever the position under general international law might be. So even if general international law might say that there is a circumstance precluding wrongfulness that you could rely on, it may still be the case that the rules of that international organization would not permit that international organization to engage in it. So very briefly, um, necessity, as many of you know, under the law of state responsibility and also responsibility of international organizations, necessity may be invoked to justify an otherwise wrongful act if that act was the only way to safeguard an essential interest against a grave and imminent peril, and if the act does not seriously impair an essential interest of the injured state or of the international community. So you have a number of things you have to look at there. So are you safeguarding an essential interest against a grave and imminent peril? You might argue yes, that 
in, these, in cases of severe need, possibly this would be an essential interest that uh, where there's a grave and imminent peril, but it must be the only way to safeguard that interest. And then it must not impair an essential interest of the injured state. And arguably, the territorial integrity of the injured state is an essential interest of that state. So then the question is, are you impairing it? And there you might need to make a distinction between, is this an airdrop, which is temporary? And you might say, OK, you're not impairing the essential interest. Or are you coming in by land and staying there for a period of time, in which case it would more likely be the case that you're impairing the essential interest of, of that state? The other possible circumstance, precluding wrongfulness, that one might look at is countermeasures. So could one argue that um, though conducting this operation without consent is unlawful, the uh, wrongfulness is precluded because it is responding to a prior uh, wrongfulness. For that argument to be accepted, one would have to accept the whole idea of third-party countermeasures. Because recall that though it is wrongful for the state concerned to withhold consent in this circumstance, the wrong is not being committed directly against the entity that is coming in. The wrong is being committed in relation to its own civilian population. So you would need to accept that third-party countermeasures are possible before you could even um, go into this question of whether countermeasures is a... Uh, a justification. And then um, also you would need to address the question of whether the measure is taken with a view to procuring cessation of the wrongfulness. Because here what you're doing is you are coming in to do something that they ought to have done. Um, and we talk about these things in, in the guidance. But we should probably... You can't use force. Can't use force. Thank you. Can't use force. Oh, that. Whether it's necessity or countermeasures, it can't be done by use of force. Thank you. That's important. Great. <laughs> Though somebody did say we shouldn't put that in. We, yes. But we put it in. Yes. Somebody did say don't put this in. Yes. Don't put this in. Yeah. <laughs> One of our experts. Okay. Um, that's, in fact, the last thing we put in. Exactly. <laughs> so that's it for us. Thank you so much. for questions.